0: Have you ever had a loved one leave the church and your relationship becomes awkward? This is so common and so sad. I got the chance to interview the Packard family who have been down this road. Cindy and Blair Packard are Orthodox believing parents and Josh, their son, and his wife have left the church. We came together to discuss their journey and it was amazing what they taught. They talked about the communications they regretted and how other siblings responded in positive and negative ways. They learned how to pick up the pieces again, express love, carry on, and build a beautiful relationship. This has become a favorite in the Questioning Saints virtual library. You can actually gain access to this interview at leadingsaints.org 14. This will give you 14 days to watch the Packards interview and many others related to helping individuals who begin to question their faith. Go to leadingsaints.org 14 and get access now. Welcome to the Leading Saints podcast. Now, for many of you that are brand new uh, to Leading Saints, it's important that you know that Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization, 501c3, dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation. We get so much positive feedback on the podcast, our virtual conferences, the articles on our website. You definitely got to check it out at LeadingSaints.org. And on their homepage at LeadingSaints.org, you can actually find the top six most downloaded episodes to the podcast. So if you're new, like the content, want to jump in to some of our most popular episodes, head there after you listen to this episode. The following episode is a throwback episode, one that was published previously and was extremely popular. To see the details of when this was originally published, see the show notes. Enjoy this throwback episode. I'm To present to you this conversation that I had with Scott Braithwaite, he's a fantastic professor down at BYU in the psychology department. He's also a remarkable marriage therapist, and he does you know therapy for things outside of of marriage as well. But uh, that's where he sort of made his name is is in uh, marriage counseling, and he goes around and does fantastic presentations. I've had the opportunity to hear some of his public presentations about that. But also, I met I met Scott down at Education Week a few years ago. And uh, he did a remarkable pr- presentation about doubt and stages of faith and about faith transitions and faith crises and really put it together in a way that I thought was beneficial for leaders to hear and understand. And I had also been studying, becoming more familiar with uh, this the Fowler stages of faith. And uh, James Fowler, which we'll talk about in this episode, has a remarkable model to look at. It's not the end-all model, or it's not going to solve everybody's problems, or, or doesn't that hold the key of of doubt that nobody will ever doubt anymore if you understand the stages of faith. But for me as a leader, it helped me categorize and put it into context. What happens when an individual doubts and moves from one stage of belief to another stage of belief and whether or not that's good or bad. And regardless if it's good or bad, how do we move forward with a heart full of empathy, of a heart full of understanding to help that person continue to hold on to faith to some level. And so... Professor Braithwaite and I have a fantastic conversation about this. So here's my interview with Professor Scott Braithwaite. Today, I have the opportunity to sit in the office of Scott Braithwaite. How are you, Scott? I'm great. How are you doing? Awesome. This is Education Week. We're at the end of August, and uh, it's a week you always have circled on your calendar, right? That's right. Because you uh, teach quite a few courses or classes at at Education Week. I do. I teach three
1: different classes at Education Week.
0: And for those of you, I'm sort of sometimes shocked about many people, even outside of Utah, that they don't understand what Education Week is. Uh, So how would you... Explain to people what education week is. Um,
1: Yeah, it's a great thing. It's a week long collection of classes that have a lot of different, like a lot of different types of topics. So you can do something that's uh, really religious. You may be into something that's more scientific, like you want to kind of continue learning, but it's a continuing education program that tends to have a pretty religious focus. But there's a lot of different people speaking about a lot of different topics. And so... Those who want to kind of keep on learning and growing often come to Education Week and walk away being pretty happy with the different offerings they have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's awesome. And
0: it's sort of you get a lot of BYU professors or everyday people, maybe with a specialty. You can take CPA courses yeah. <laughs> about taxes, about anxiety, if you want, or Absolutely, even yeah. about the darkest or the, the deepest secrets about the Doctrine and Covenants or right. something like you, that's get, right. you get intense here. So it's great that you're a part of that and uh, teach a lot of uh, great courses here. And I, I need to confess to my audience, this is the second time we've actually done this interview. You are my only interview in the history of leading LDS of over 300 episodes where I got back to my computer after a fantastic interview. I put in the the uh, flash drive and nothing was there. And I, <laughs> I called like data recovery companies and alas, nothing worked. And so here we are. So I appreciate you giving double the time. Happy to do it. I just consider that the dress rehearsal. So. Good. Nice. <laughs> nice. So a few things I want to talk about, uh, mainly on this topic, because one of your courses is all around. Correct me if I'm uh, misquoting this, but uh, the supporting family,
1: supporting loved ones going through a faith crisis. That's yeah. The the one class that I teach is about trying to help people who are going through a crisis of faith. Right.
0: So we'll definitely touch on that. But uh, you're also, then your other classes are more related to your direct everyday responsibilities as a therapist, as a marriage therapist.
1: Kind of. Yeah. One of them is about marriage. It's about kind of the process of how we go about selecting who we marry and then how to keep your marriage strong. So it's all about Mm -hmm. marital health The other one is about how to improve and progress just because where I got my PhD, uh, there's someone there named Anders Ericsson who studies deliberate practice. He's kind of the world's expert on expertise. And so I got pretty excited about him and his research. And so it's kind of applying how to improve and progress a little bit in a gospel context, but in a a broader context, just if there's something in your life that you want to get better at, Mm -hmm. it's kind of how to do that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I should also note that you're also currently serving as a bishop. Yeah. I had four plus years now. So you, That's right. you
1: figured it all out. Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: and I'm always interested in the, what's the dynamic like of being a therapist and a bishop? Cause bishops always get the bad rap, like, Hey, you're not a therapist. Don't try to be. And I don't think anybody's meaning to be a therapist, but yeah. sometimes we fall into that. But do you leverage that ability and, you know, counsel with those that, that you meet with, or do you draw a clear distinction and say, no, I need to send the, this person to a therapist and separate
1: that? Yeah. When I'm functioning as a bishop, I try primarily to just function as a bishop. Mm -hmm. I do think that having the training that I do brings a certain perspective and background and maybe even a set of skills that helps. But at the same time, if someone has a problem that's primarily kind of mental health or psychological, I will often refer them to somebody else just because I think that I can be a pretty good bishop or I can be a pretty good psychologist. But when I try to cross those wires, I worry that we end up not doing either of them very well. Mm -hmm. And so I like to try to keep that
0: Keep those lanes separate. Yeah. And usually, if you, if there's a counseling involved, it, you know you, that individual may need to meet with somebody once or twice a week for an hour each time. And as a bishop, you've you're given plenty
1: of time already, right? Yeah. Well, and the truth is, is that as a as a therapist, I kind of use some different tools, and I can be hmm. I can be a little bit mean sometimes. And I I want to make sure when everything's all said and done that people always feel like they have a bishop uh-huh. when they're done working with me, I and mean, that I haven't hurt uh, any feelings or burned any bridges. Nice. So. So as a therapist, you can be kind of mean, like pushing people, like, no, this is what you need to do. Sometimes people need a little bit of a kick in the pants. And yeah. I do that as a psychologist. I don't do that quite as much as a bishop.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. Maybe there's moments, but you know, yeah, that's good. Any advice you'd have, you know, cause again, I, I, I worry about this uh, stigma that bishops get that they, you know, these people outside the church are, they're critical of a bishops think we're all getting together and say, yeah, let's not send him to the therapist. Let's try and do it ourselves. And it, but what can we do and or what are some signs we can look
1: for and maybe in the context of marriage or hopefully that question is not too general? Yeah. I, one for me that I think is a big one is being able to differentiate a little bit between sadness and depression. Hmm. I think That's sometimes great. we conflate the two. We Sadness is a normal human reaction to things in life that happen that don't go your way. And if your dog dies, you you will feel sad and there's nothing pathological about it. It's part of being human and caring and loving. But depression's different. Depression's a clinical syndrome that kills people and it needs to be treated aggressively. Mm -hmm. And so I think that once someone doesn't seem to just be having a normal reaction of sadness, but you see other things that are going along with it, like they're not getting out of bed or their appetite has changed and they don't enjoy things they used to enjoy doing, we've reached into this clinical realm that we want to get help, but we don't want to ignore it. And, you know, as Elder Holland taught in his uh, important talk that he gave a few years ago now, the one that's called Like a Broken Vessel we don't want to pretend that you should just pray your way out of it you should seek professional help yeah
0: yeah and so and is there a way to determine if someone is just sad i guess if it's more
1: of a chronic thing right that they just can't seem to it depends like depression is is episodic like it comes and goes it waxes mm. and wanes if somebody really just finds that they feel like the future is dark and hopeless and again another really key symptom that's sometimes not as well known is that they've always enjoyed doing something and they just no longer find any joy in the things that they used to enjoy doing. I think we need to get it checked out. But I will have to admit that I'm a psychologist who thinks that um, psychologists shouldn't be treated as the last resort. Right? Mm, right. (laughs) If I had it my way, psychologists would function more like dentists where people would check in periodically. And most of the work that we do would be preventing problems from happening rather than pulling out all your teeth and putting in new ones.
0: Yeah. And I think another angle with that, with a lot of bishops struggle with is that Sometimes they feel like, okay, if I'm referring this person to counselor and they, I know they can't pay for it, and we're gonna have to use sacred funds. And I guess for me, coming from a ward that was high welfare, like I was spending, you know, approving thousands and thousands of dollars for rent checks. And so, a hundred dollar, you know, counseling visit for me seems so tiny. Like I would give those out all day, every day, Hmm. and just to to do it. Like, do you feel like it's helpful to sort of separate that? Like that's what the sacred funds are for. Like regardless, even if you have an inkling of depression or some mental health concerns, send
1: them, right? Use those funds. Maybe. Here's where I'm going to be critical of my own profession. I don't think that all mental health workers are going to do a very good job. Mm. Like we just don't, we're not yet at a place where as a field, we have really well-established standards to meet the standard of care. If you, for example, broke your leg and you went to a physician and she said, well, I think we should do some smelling salts in a seaweed wrap. She would lose her license, right? <laughs> but in psychology, it's kind of anything goes, and so interesting. I'm okay. I'm very particular about how and when I refer. But yes, I don't wait till the moment of abject crisis, uh, yeah, to get there.
0: Yeah, I think that that's helpful to know because there are. I remember, uh, you know, after a few years being bishop, I sort of found a few therapists that I really benefited working with. You know, they were very responsive to to me as a bishop, and and I felt like everybody I sent to them. I saw progress there, but. You're right. There's some individuals you may send and say, well, I don't get it. Like we did six weeks of therapy, like, but nothing, nothing's changing. And not that that's a bad therapist, but are there anything that the Bishop could do to really make sure that they're sending them to somebody that
1: that's going to actually help? I find that it's often best if you know somebody in the field to ask for a referral, Mm -hmm. because I do think that we who work in the profession kind of know who we trust and Who we might avoid, and so I would, I would probably just find somebody and ask for a referral. Heck, you can email me and I'll give you a referral. Okay, there
0: you go. (laughs) Look out, and better uh, watch your inbox here. Um, And the last clinical question I have is: you this this class you're doing during Education Week about finding the right partner. I think a lot of individuals, especially those in YSA wards, they have people coming to them saying, "I found her," or "I found him," and but that person doesn't think so, or whatever. Any. Give us a the 30-second summary of what
1: you're you're going to teach and that would be applicable to the leaders. Yeah, I think the thing that I teach that feels counterintuitive to a lot of people, but I think is really important is that you choose who it is that you marry. This person was not chosen for you in the pre-existence. And it's not your job simply to, you know, date a few people and wait for the revelation that says that's the one, but it's to do your homework and to actually pay the price to get to know the soul of the person that you are considering. Marrying for eternity—it's something that requires time investment and effort. And in the end, you have to be comfortable with the idea that God gives you agency when it comes to the most important choice you'll ever make. And
0: what would you say to those that that it's not happening in the right place in the temple? Right, that's the the storybook wedding. But you know, every story is different in the church. Any advice as far as what if my daughter does pick somebody who hasn't been to church for years or isn't a return missionary or you know isn't necessarily the faithful
1: priesthood holder I, I hoped? Yeah. It's a really tricky thing because once someone has kind of set their heart on someone, it's very difficult to change their mind. Yeah. And sometimes people's attempts to change their mind create wrinkles in mm-hmm. those most important relationships between parents and children or, or whatever. I agree. Each situation is pretty unique. And even though we do have patterns and ideals, we need to make sure that at the heart of the matter, we kind of have some values and some morality that allow some flexibility around that ideal pattern. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I guess that's a good segue to the, the main topic I want to talking about because really at the end of the day, this is, I mean, people get themselves not only into, into faith crises, but sometimes relationship crises. And as if, as a parent or as a loved one, as a Bishop, sometimes you just have to step back and say, well, we love you. Like how, when's the reception? We're excited to be there yeah. at, where we can't jump in and try and fix it or, or say, well, did you know this about the individual and try and manipulate them away from that relationship? Sometimes that's the road they're
1: going down and we have to step back and let it unfold. I agree. I think that, um, we often want to try to control situations that we can't possibly control. And all we can do is create more damage by trying to control it. And so at some point you do have to realize that there's more at play here than just what happens in the next six months. Awesome.
0: All right. Now I'm going to the main topic here, faith crisis. You're teaching all these relationship and marriage courses. Why, how did this come that you suddenly have this, this faith crisis or, or doubt class on your schedule that yeah. education week?
1: The thing for me is that there are a lot of different people, I think, who are addressing this topic, faith crisis, and I love what they're doing. I'm I'm a big fan of your Richard Bushman's and your Spencer Flumans and all these people who yeah. are out there just doing incredible things. They tend to come from a religious studies background or from a history background, and I think that there's a really important psychological component that is neglected, generally, mm-hmm. like that they're dealing with the substance of what people are having a faith crisis about But ultimately, this is about people and the way that people are responding to a situation where they had expectations and those were violated. And that's kind of what psychologists do. And Mm so for me, it was this idea that um, I think I have a unique perspective that deals with the people side of all of Mm -hmm. this. And And that's, I mean, you went through your own, what you would classify as a faith crisis. Would you mind telling us that story? Sure. Yeah. For me, uh, this kind of happened around... 2004. So I was faith crisis way before faith crisis was cool. Um, (laughs) My wife and I had moved to New York. We were starting graduate school. Um, I ended up graduating from Florida state, but uh, I started working with a professor in upstate New York, pretty close to where the church history sites were. And at this point, your typical Mormon boy, return missionary, missionary, married in the temple. All that. Yeah. I kind of ticked all those boxes Uh and and I really enjoyed it. I, I don't think I had any, any experiences that necessarily led me to a faith crisis. It was just What happened is we were going to the church history sites often. We had a lot of visitors who came. And so we were spending our weekends often going to Palmyra and the sacred grove and sometimes over to Kirtland. And that got us really interested in church history. And so my wife uh, was the first one actually to kind of pick up a book called uh, Mormon enigma. And it's a biography of Emma Smith, a really great biography, but one that doesn't necessarily pull any punches. It doesn't shy away from the difficult aspects of the story. And, As we read this, I don't think there was anything that we hadn't come across before, but it was the first time that we read something that I think was very thoughtful and that was very well-researched and just really digging into this matter. It wasn't just an attack, right? Right. No, I I think it's a great, I think it's a great historical book, Yeah. but having been mostly exposed to kind of correlated church materials, it, it, it talked about things that I hadn't heard that much about. So for both of us, we were kind of like, wow, this is a little bit of a different, you know, narrative than we'd heard. It wasn't something that had completely unsettled us, but it made us kind of ask the question, do you have to either not know stuff or turn off your brain to stay LDS? And we both decided that that couldn't possibly be true, yeah. right? That the the truth ought to be a subject that kind of bears investigation. Yeah. And, and so,
0: mean, is a great deal of our doctrine. I mean, right. We can't just
1: yeah. like it's not there. So we decided that the answer was to kind of go all in and to, to learn everything that we could about all of this. And so that for us began a long course of study where we just wanted to know everything there was to know about everything. And so what I mean by that is that I didn't just, you know, read something like that day's equivalent of the CES letter. I read every reference in the CES letter. Oh, wow. I I, I kind of I got into because that was kind of my way of coping. That's my way of dealing with things. I do research. Like yeah. I study, I kind of learn all the things that there are to learn. And uh through all of that, I mean I guess you could call that a crisis of faith at, at no point did I ever feel compelled to let go of the faith that i had grown up with but it changed it yeah. became a different maybe more nuanced version of that faith so i don't feel like my testimony coming out the other side of it is a testimony with an asterisk next to it i think uh-huh. it's testimony it's yeah. a vibrant living testimony that sustains me and yeah. so that was kind of what happened for me and I think as we get into this idea of stages of faith, I can kind of highlight maybe some of those specific things yeah. that, that happened for me. Did you ever feel like
0: violated by, by the church? Like the people go
1: through this process of why didn't you tell me, why did you hold this back from me? I think that's a really common narrative that didn't happen for me. I mean, there was a little bit of just like, I don't, I don't understand why there wasn't something in the church curriculum that even mentioned that Joseph had more wives than Emma. But at the same time, I think I understood why I think I understood the perspective of the people who were in charge of the curriculum and that they were, I think, trying to do the best they could to help sustain faith and to build up people's testimonies. But I think that we've come around to a different way of thinking about that now. The idea is let's tell the whole story. Let's not worry about omitting parts that are difficult or thorny. Mm-hmm.
0: So do you feel like there, well, there was ever a, a point where you were had to make, it, made it, make a decision, or did you feel like, wow, this is... I had you sort of what I'm hearing is like you had to step back and reevaluate but you never stepped out of
1: any and any tradition that you had before. No. I mean I through the whole process we were very active and in some ways I feel like for us for our particular story that was important because we're digging into the nitty-gritty of church history while visiting church history sites and feeling the spirit that you feel in the sacred grove and I think for us that was important. Maybe we needed that. We needed that to sustain us through this process of sorting through some of the more difficult aspects yep. of it. That's great.
0: And since then, uh, so how did that, did you suggest
1: to Education Week to that you wanted to teach on this or how did that come to be? I did. Yeah. I mean, they had approached me to teach some of these other classes and I suggested this one. I'll be honest. I didn't know what they would say. I didn't know if they would like the idea or if they're just like, ah, that's a little outside the scope of what we're trying to do, but they were very excited about it and the minute that I submitted it, they said, okay, let's go. Nice. Now I'm
0: going to be quite selfish here because instead of going to your education class, which I may do later, but i take the instructor into his office and I get, I get one-on-one time here to share with others. But I know in this, you emphasize about the the Fowler stages of faith. That's, would you say that's the the core of,
1: of what you go through? Or is that just one example? A little bit. I kind of build it using the framework of James Fowler's stages of faith. But I highlight the fact that his stages of faith corresponds really nicely with uh, Bruce C. Hafen, who gave a talk at a BYU devotional, it was actually in the late 70s, where he identified kind of his taxonomy, where he thinks there's these three different levels of faith. And then also a really important uh, address from Elder Ballard to the CES instructors of the church Mm, about how we, we need to adjust the way that we teach these things. So it's kind of highlighting those three things and showing how well they all work together. So
0: I think most people know who Bruce C. Hafen is. He's still around, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, emeritus general authority, but also was the uh, head of CES, right? Uh, During his time as a a
1: former president of BYUI or Ricks College. Ricks College, yeah. So who's James Fowler? James Fowler was a, he died a few years ago. He was a Methodist minister, but also a theologian, and he taught at Emory University. So he was someone who was kind of a scientist and a practitioner, meaning that he studied faith kind of using a scientific framework but also he was a minister. He had a congregation and he saw the lived experience of people who are trying to walk the walk of faith. And in that experience, he said, I I noticed that there were certain steps that people go through in the development of faith and kind of fleshed out this taxonomy that shows kind of what these phases look like and how people tend to progress through them.
0: Yeah. And I love these stages of faith because for me, they help me articulate and better understand and better empathize with those that maybe are going through what we would classify as a faith crisis. And we've talked about leading all this before. That's not really the best term, but for the lack of a better term, faith crisis. And since then I've sort of used the term faith transition as you're transitioning through different stages of faith, where I feel like in our tradition in the church, there's more of a black and white two stage. You either prayed and received a witness or you haven't yet, or you lost it, or you either have a recommend or you don't. And so it's very black and white, I think, for, and it's not just our our religion, but many Christian religions, it can be very black and white. And so having these stages, I think, bring a lot of hope and understanding of of the human experience as it relates to faith. Mm-hmm. So what would be the next step to describe what these Fowler stages are, then sort of
1: juxtapose them to Hafen? Sure, yeah. So the first two, I think, are not super interesting. I think they reflect the fact that he was into a psychologist named Jean Piaget at the time who talks about some of these developmental things. I think where we start to get interesting is in the third stage of faith. And stage three faith is one that he, James Fowler, says most people spend most of their religious life in. Mm -hmm. So this is not an unusual thing. Stage three faith is very much about group identity, like you were saying that we're really into who's in and who's out. Yeah. It's primarily about rules and it's very, very concrete and black and white. So there are good guys. There are bad guys. There's us and there's the world and the world is wicked and we're good and all of those kinds of things. It's a very neat and tidy story. So this is where for me, I start to kind of think a little bit more about what we know in psychology. It's this idea of what I call simple stories. So let's kind of come back to this idea of marriage and just psychology in general. When we live life, we typically have a few facts and then we have to fill in the blanks in between. For example, if I'm walking down the hall at church or something, let's say I walk down the hall, somebody walks past me and I kind of wave at them to say hello and they don't respond back. Those are the facts of the situation. But in my mind, I create a story and that story tries to help make sense of that situation. And so I may be the kind of person who says, what a jerk. They clearly saw me and they're just rude and they didn't wave back. That's the story that I tell myself. You have other people who might be more inclined to say, oh, maybe they just didn't see me or, or whatever. But the point is the facts are simply we walk past each other. They didn't wave. I did. I didn't like the way that I felt after that. Usually the story that we, self, we tell ourselves is really simple. It's a clean, neat, tidy story with good guys and bad guys. Mm-hmm. Usually we're the good guy. Right. <laughs> other people who have aggrieved us are the bad guy. And we kind of run with it. And we believe the whole thing. It's almost like we don't realize that we filled in the blanks. We just believe that that story is the truth. Mm -hmm. This happens in marriage therapy all the time, where when a couple comes in, the first thing that I try to do is make sense of why they're coming in to see me. So I meet with them separately. Oftentimes, you know, when I sit down with one, they'll say that they don't say it quite this clearly, but I'm experiencing a lot of pain. And when I think about it, my pain is happening because of my husband, because he is just this uncaring jerk who refuses to do anything reasonable to help foster a relationship. And then I'll talk to the husband. He's like, my wife is crazy. And I'm thrilled that you're now going to help me help her understand just how crazy she is. Right. They have this really simple story that their marriage problems are entirely outside of themselves. And that if that person would just change this, then everything would be better. Hmm. And step one is that we really have to help them to develop what we call a, we can call it a more complex story. I would call it a dyadic conceptualization, meaning that they realize that we're partners and that we kind of do a dance And that the other person isn't actually the enemy, but this dance that we do is causing problems for us. And in a really counterintuitive way, our attempts to heal our marriage are actually the thing that's making it terrible right Mm. now, because we're trying so hard to do this and we're doing this dance the wrong way. But it's a much more complicated story than he's a jerk and he won't do the most basic things for our marriage. Coming back to faith crisis, I think it's really easy to have this simple black and white worldview where... We see this as a very simple story. I think, as members of the church, if somebody leaves the church, we tell a simple story. We say, "Oh, they're secretly sinning, or they're lazy, or they want to sin, or they were offended, or you know some version of that. yeah, and when we tell ourselves that story, what are we going to get out of it? It's not our problem; they're a jerk and they're choosing to walk away. I think it's a much more complicated story than that, and so it's part of what I seek to tell in this education week talk is to help us to understand to get into that little Story and realize that it's a lot more complicated than we think it is. Because stage three makes things look simple, but they're often not. Right. So let's keep going with Fowler's stages of faith. Mm -hmm. Stage three, where everything is neat and tidy. If you have something that challenges your faith, you can usually just say, "Well, that's anti." I don't have to address that. But sometimes for people, too much stuff accumulates and they actually tip over into stage four. Stage four is what we often call a faith crisis. Fowler kind of termed it. You know, he, he probably wouldn't use that exact term, but that's really the idea. It's that the bottom falls out from your life and you just don't know whether you can know that anything is true anymore. Everything is now up in the air and you just feel the sense of chaos and panic about this thing that has been the bedrock of your life has now evaporated for you and you don't know what to hang on to. So for a lot of people in stage four, the tragedy is that they'll leave their faith tradition. You know, in this case, we're talking about Mormonism, but remember Fowler was not LDS. He was not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of latter That's sense. right. You get that
0: right. We'll that's right. Do some hard edits
1: here. Uh, right. <laughs> and uh, the thing that's kind of ironic, though, is that they'll stay in that stage three mindset. They'll actually stay very, very rigid in their thinking, but they kind of switch teams. And yeah, so now the church, the church becomes the bad guy, and it was pulling the wool over their eyes the whole time, and it was not uh, forthcoming about things that it should have been forthcoming with. And so they find kind of a sense of community elsewhere. They find things That they can hold on to elsewhere. And I don't begrudge them for that. I just think that the problem here is that they stay in this uncomfortable, rigid state, but now kind of the bottom has fallen out and they've walked away from something that for a very long time provided a lot of structure and support in their life. And I don't think that's the only option. Yeah. I think that there's a lot more that we can do there. Yeah. So
0: and one thing I want to interject here, sure. as far as with Fowler's stages, that, you know, he numbers them and that can naturally give this inclination of like, we're supposed to, in our human experience, are supposed to graduate through each one. And, you know, you briefly touched on stage one and two that I sort of look at, if you go into primary, you're going to see very stage one or two faith development. Right. And then we graduate into stage three. And so to seem numbered like this, I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the point isn't. So we're the four stage fours for the long, the path than we are stage five. These
1: are just different classifications, not necessarily this lineal Stage of progress, right? Right. And the truth is is that if there's a weakness to this stage model, it's that, as you're describing, it's probably not so neat and tidy. Like you mm-hmm. don't necessarily progress through all these things. But again, I think with Fowler and with Elder Hafen and with others where you see this kind of the same pattern show up across multiple people who I think independently are coming at this truth, I think there's something to it, but you're right. It's yeah. usually not such a neat, tidy yeah thing. Yeah. It's not a simple story, right?
0: Right. Exactly. And and another <laughs> concept of, is that I feel like, you know, most, I always describe myself. I'm a stage three Mormon and, or Latter-day Saint. I'll yeah. get this right. And most bishops are right. Mm-hmm. Very Orthodox. Mm-hmm. And what happens is that stage four individual walks into the Bishop's office to a stage three Latter-day Saint. And it's, the natural inclination is to pull that person stage four back to stage three and say, no, 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 you're reading all the wrong stuff. Mm -hmm. Stop doing that. Just read your scriptures, go to the temple where get back to stage three because it's beautiful here. Right. And I think it's important to know that there's no, this is a one way track. You can't put the genie back in the bottle, right?
1: That's my experience. My experience is that people who have left stage three, when we try to push them back, we, we don't help. We yeah. usually just make them feel alienated and distant and like they're not being listened to or that we're not taking seriously the concerns that they have. And so that's my experience as well. That, And here's the other thing. I sound maybe a little bit like I'm bagging on stage three faith. And the truth is I'm not. My concern about stage three faith is not that it's somehow more juvenile or anything yeah. like that. My concern, though, is that it puts people at risk, mm-hmm. that if we have this rigid, concrete worldview that's so perfectionistic that it couldn't possibly bear any kind of scrutiny, you're putting yourself at great risk for having a faith crisis. right? Yeah. And again, this is where we come to the psychology of it, that if you have this perfectionistic worldview that says things like perfectionism usually shows up in our life in the form of rules. We have rules in our head like the church is true. Therefore, and then what comes after that is kind of the rule that each of us have. And as a psychologist, mm-hmm. I'm always interested in what their rules are. What I often hear is that people will say something like the church is true. Therefore, the leaders are basically perfect and they really don't make any mistakes. So the first time that they're exposed to something where there was a clear mistake made, they're unsettled and for them it all falls apart. Yeah. Because if something's all or nothing, it always ends up being nothing if it's scrutinized. Yeah. Or they may say every statement made by a church leader always constitutes doctrine. But again, this is where we get into this idea that I kind of differentiate between what I would call cultural Mormonism and doctrinal Mormonism. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. So to me, cultural Mormonism isn't the fact that, you know, we often wear dresses with puffy sleeves to dances or (laughs) drink Sprite or, you know, that that kind of thing. It has more to do with like the version of our faith that we get just by going to church and talking to Mormons and hearing what they think and what they say. Whereas doctrinal Mormonism, I would say, is the canonized scriptural doctrine of the church. It's what we believe that everybody agrees on, that mm-hmm. we for sure believe. Cultural Mormonism, I would argue, is a little bit more into rules. It's into group identity, who's in and who's out, where are the boundaries of what constitutes Mormonism and not. And can I eyeball someone and say, well, they have a tattoo, so they couldn't be a very good Mormon, right? And, <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. Whereas doctrinal Mormonism is much more about principles principles. It's less about rules and more about kind of putting your trust and your faith in God. And it it invites everybody to come unto Christ, right? Mm-hmm. It's not so interested in whether or not, you know, as Elder Uchtdorf said, their testimony is this high. I think oftentimes, but not always, people's struggles with faith come from their understanding of cultural Mormonism, that they feel this pain or this rejection, or they believe that we really are such a rigid faith that we can't possibly include some of these things that they're struggling with the difference for me is not so much that there is not overlap between cultural and doctrinal Mormonism. It's that I believe doctrinal Mormonism is living and vibrant and awesome. And it's something that I have so much faith and belief in, right? Whereas cultural Mormonism, I think all of us find a little bit difficult, right? So I think oftentimes people's struggles with their faith, they come from bringing a really perfectionistic worldview, a very black and white way of thinking. And then in this cultural milieu that sometimes doesn't necessarily represent what the church actually believes and when those two go together, it just creates friction and tension. And sometimes it's enough that they're just like, okay, I'm done. That's not the true case for everybody. I think there's some people who really, really know doctrinal Mormonism and they have honest disagreements about it. So I, I don't mean to imply that that's true for everybody, but I think that for a lot of them, it can be part of the problem.
0: Yeah. That's a, and I think that's an interesting point of view to look at it, that especially when the, the cultural and the doctrinal sort of clash. And maybe because of the cultural, somebody finds themselves sort of disinfected from the church. They often think, well, the doctrine needs to change. When in reality, it's the culture that needs to change. There's nothing necessarily wrong with the doctrine. So yeah. maybe, you know, they may not agree with everything in the
1: doctrine, but they miss often the culture that is really upsetting to them. Totally. And I think cultural Mormonism, it treats our religion like so many other religions that, you know, Joseph was having trouble with. It's saying, you look to the past for authoritative answers to questions that you have. But I think doctrinal Mormonism says, no, you keep your eye on the prophet because there are many great and important things that are yet to be revealed, mm-hmm. right? It recognizes that this is a living, vibrant yeah. church. It's not a collection of writings from the past, although that's part of our heritage. Um, just to make this less abstract, let me give a concrete example. um this is one that I think just kind of, Illustrates this pretty well. It's the idea of evolution, the organic evolution. Mm-hmm. So I think if you surveyed a hundred Mormons saying, What do we believe about evolution? they would say that is heretical. That is bad. Right. Nobody who believes in God believes in that. Doctrinal Mormonism tells a different story, right? Mm-hmm. The church has actually given official statements on this, and they've said, our official position is that we take no position when it comes to evolution as the process that you know people were created by. And then if you read deeply what people have said about this, you'll find that there are some people who are vehemently opposed to it. And so you're Joseph Fielding Smiths, your Bruce R. McConkeys, you know, people like that. Then you find other people who are vocal proponents of this theory. James E. Talmadge, B.H. Roberts, Johnny Widso, you know, mm-hmm. who, who really spoke and said, I believe this is the process by which God did his work. So again, that to me speaks to this idea that doctrinal Mormonism is vibrant. It allows room for different perspectives on really fundamental issues But we don't often have discussions about that. We have discussions about cultural Mormonism. And someone says, well, I believe in science, and Mormonism rejects science and evolution, so I'm out. Mm -hmm. And and that's what I'm saying is that I think we want to make sure that what we're rejecting is actually espousing the view that we find so troubling.
0: Yeah. So going back to the the stages, you know, you focus on three and four, and maybe, uh, and I think what you're articulating there is, a lot of time cultural Mormonism can easily push someone from stage three to stage four. Yeah, And then then they're sort of in this free fall period of, well, what do I do now? What can I know if anything's true? Maybe mm-hmm. finish off the stages and yeah. is there, are there seven or six? There's six. Okay. And yeah. six is
1: kind of hard to understand, but right.
0: maybe talk to us about five
1: and six and then sure. we'll, we'll come back. Yeah. So the, the thing about stage four, again, I always think about things in terms of marriage, which I think actually works really well as a metaphor for yeah. faith a lot of times, yeah. but in marriage, what often happens is you have a couple and there's problems in the relationship But both people really want to hang on to a conviction that they're in a good relationship. So Mm. they'll actually put up with a lot. They'll take a lot of things and they'll continue to do it. But then one day the bottom falls out and suddenly they recast their entire history together in a different light. They say, you know what? I've always known that she was a spoiled brat and that she couldn't ever be happily married to anyone. I remember on our first date, this happened and this happened and this happened. And so they rewrite their entire history together from Mm. a perspective of real pessimism and negativity. When that happens, it's very, very hard to get that couple to get back on track. And I think there's something there between stage three and four. Mm. That in stage three, sometimes you have someone who's trying to hang on to stage three, but once they go to stage four, there's really no going back, right? It's really difficult, like you said, to put that genie back in the bottle. And so... When this faith crisis happens, I think the best way forward is to understand stage five. And what stage five offers is a view of faith that allows for complexity. It tolerates complexity and nuance. And it just accepts the fact that the work of God will always be mediated through imperfect human beings. And that means that there will always be human fingerprints on anything divine, that we don't get this pure, unfiltered, untouched thing from heaven it comes through people and it will reflect the culture and the time and the personalities of those people. But that doesn't somehow diminish it or make it so it couldn't possibly be true. That's what stage five, this faith allows for. It allows us to see complexity and nuance and to say, well, I need to have faith. I don't have perfect knowledge that every aspect of this is perfectly true. I have faith. And again, that should be something that we're comfortable with. Like one of our most frequently cited passages of scripture is Alma 32 and it makes this really clear distinction that perfect knowledge is this one thing that's really different from faith mm-hmm. and i think that we need to destigmatize faith because faith allows room for doubt faith allows room for us to say i don't know all the answers to every question but perfect knowledge doesn't and i think that when we talk about testimony we somehow have skipped faith and we've decided that testimony is perfect knowledge and so stage 5 allows us to to wrestle with things that don't quite add up to us one of the analogies that i love there are a lot of different people that i love to read one of them is rachel held evans she's a kind of a a protestant thinker but someone who has dealt with faith crisis in her own life and she brings up the story of jacob when he wrestles with the angel Hmm. and then afterwards his name changes to israel right but as she talks about this and others have too terrell givens has talked about this he has a book called wrestling with the angel But they talk about this idea that Jacob wrestles with the angel. And in the end, he realizes that the angel is actually God. And that when he kind of wins this wrestle, when it's all said and done, he asks for a blessing from God. And I think there's something in there for us when it comes to faith crisis and all of these different things that we want to believe that the gospel is a set of perfect answers to every question. And instead, I think that we in stage five faith come to realize that faith will always involve some elements of wrestling and saying, I don't understand how all this fits together. And I don't know how that happened that way. But when it's all said and done, if we're willing to wrestle, I believe that we can ask God for a blessing. And I think that that blessing can be this sort of stage five faith. For me, when I was called to be a bishop, I thought it was a weird choice. I wouldn't have picked me. (laughs) We've all been there. Uh, Yeah. The one thing though, that I kept coming back to that I said, maybe this is the one thing I might have to offer. And it's that I have looked down the barrel of every thorny, difficult issue. There's really nothing that somebody could throw at me that I haven't wrestled with. Yeah. And I came through the other side with faith. I came through the other side with a testimony and I treasure that testimony. It's something that means everything to me. I feel like it's the blessing that I was able to ask for in the midst of the wrestle. And I don't mean to imply that I am now this fully formed, you know, (laughs) Buddha-like person. It is
0: awful Brighton here. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I'm someone I think who has wrestled and who's come through it with, with faith. Yeah. I love that.
0: Stage six, just yes, yeah, is always a stage one six understand. would be
1: if I became Buddha, right? right? Like I become this enlightened. You know, he says there's really only a few people who have attained yeah. this, and you know there are people like Martin Luther King Jr. and something like that, people who are willing to kind
0: I of give often everything. Use, uh, like Mother Teresa, yeah, is a good example. Yeah. This, where she, she wasn't like, you know, contemplating the the simple doctrines of. Catholicism or, or wrestling with them, She was sort of beyond that and was out just giving everything. Right.
1: But right. the thing that I, you know, I love that you bring up mother Teresa because she's someone who after her death, it was revealed that she felt like she'd had this dark night of the soul yeah. where for a period of 20 yeah, years. She said, I felt like God just wasn't talking to me and it turned yeah. his back on me. But yet she's there in these, you know, poor areas caring for orphans every day of her life. It's uh-huh. that's faith. Yeah.
0: So now we have a basic general understanding and I actually have you know, I've talked a lot about Fowler's Stages of Faith. I've never cracked the book. Is it a academic book? I actually have it at the Bountiful Library waiting <laughs> for me to pick up. Because is it a book that a leader should sit down and try and consume? Or is it a bit too academic? You know, if you're inclined to do so, I think it's uh-huh. a great
1: read because okay. it
0: will dig in. <laughs> I don't this. trust you <laughs> in your academic background. No, yeah.
1: Yeah. Keeping in mind that like I, I torture students for, you know, my day job, yeah. but, um, no, I, I find it really interesting, but at the same time, I think that there are probably other reads that are a little bit more worth right. your time. Right. I think that yeah, they yeah. they deal more directly with some of these issues. I'm a big fan of Patrick Mason's book planted. And I think oh, yeah, it, that's great book. it starts yeah. to address some of these yeah. things. It doesn't necessarily talk about it in a stages of faith way, but helps us to understand that the stories of why people go are often complicated and complex and that uh-huh. we probably shouldn't so blithely just dismiss them as like, oh, they just they just want us in.
0: Yeah. I want to ask you a few questions that people ask me when it comes to Father's stages of Faith. One, they hear the stage six, like, oh, I want to be like Mother Teresa. I mean, Jesus Christ was definitely there. Yeah. Uh, like,
1: so is the goal to get to stage six? Should we shoot for stage six? The truth is, I think about the three stages, I think three, four, and five, uh-huh. like, that's the part of it that I take away because it rings true with my experience. And it kind of, you see those three stages show up in a lot of different people's writings. Uh-huh. So I think this idea of a more concrete black and white version, a very simple story version of faith. And again, I think that plenty of people have that version of faith. And I think it's a great place to be. I don't know that we necessarily want to push everybody farther than they want to go. Right. So I'm not someone who's out there saying, let's just go and unsettle everybody. And every Sunday, let's go shake up their faith and make sure they know, you know, everything that's out there. But at the same time, I think we should be really clear and transparent about the whole story. Yeah. Because for me, I don't think, you know, a hat and a sear stone is any more bizarre than an angel in gold plates. Right. It's just a matter of telling that whole story up front and making uh-huh. sure that we have kind of those details, right. And that the the artwork kind of reflects the reality. And I think that's a great thing for us to do. But at the same time, I think that people very naturally will progress through these stages at the right time in their life and that we want to help them when that happens. We want to be someone who can be sort of a midwife that can kind of help them mm, I like that. Yeah, give birth through this whole process. And there is a period of pain and frustration and difficulty, but hopefully there's a great blessing on the other side yeah. of it too. And that was uh, kind
0: of leads in the next question I was gonna ask you is that if somebody's in a stage four in stage four. And we recognize that obviously as a leader, you know, that stage four seems very unstable and, and you're sort of in that free fall state. So, and then I realized, okay, I, I remember I can't pull him back to stage three, so maybe I can push him to stage five. Yeah. But like you said, this is, this has got to be all in
1: on their timetable. Right? Absolutely. I personally believe that when it comes to matters of faith and belief and the core of who we are, you are pretty powerless to push anything or to pull any levers What I think you can offer as a leader in a room with someone who's in the midst of a faith crisis is being someone who is willing to sit with them and to mourn with those that mourn and to comfort those that stand in need of comfort. Because for many of them, they have lost their faith. This has been the bedrock of their life. It's evaporated and they don't know what to do. They feel like they're in a free fall. And what they need in that situation is not advice. They need somebody who's willing to kind of mourn with them, to sit with them and to comfort them and to them feel loved and supported.
0: And I, I really want to focus on that. And, and I think that's it's easier said than done because when that person comes in and there they are like weeping in your bishop's office and okay, two minutes have gone by. Uh what do I say? You know, and so we we sometimes just default to these well let's read the scripture. How's your temple attendance? And you know, where it sitting with them is really difficult. So how would you expand on that? What does that look like for you and your
1: experience as a bishop? It it depends because it what I will often do, and I will admit, this is probably where, you know, having a PhD in clinical psychology helps. Them. <laughs> so go get one of those. No. Yeah. <laughs> but for me, it really is that I'm not going in there with an agenda. Mm-hmm. I'm not oh, going okay. in there with like this three point plan that I need them to do. I'm trying very hard to not only listen to them, but also to listen to the spirit, because I think that in those moments, yeah. the spirit will help you know what it is that you need to do. As yeah. I don't think that there is I don't think you can script this out and say, "Oh, all people who are in the midst of a stage four faith crisis." Here is the, you know, five steps that you take. I think it's much more individualized, and it kind of it takes a lot of a lot of listening to the spirit, and but yeah. mostly listening to them because a lot of times mm-hmm. they'll tell you what it is that they need. They'll want to share because this is something that's just boiling within them all the time. And I think that if you're going to follow a rule, it would be try to listen more than you talk. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, that should be. On every bishop's desk. Just listen.
0: Stop talking. <laughs> yeah. And this, and sometimes you know, it can be that person may say, you know, what I need is I just I don't want to come come to church for six weeks or more. I, I just don't want to come back right now. And it's hard for, as the bishop to say, okay, you know, is it okay if we keep meeting? Right. And yeah. Trying to engage them on that level, not again to fix them, but to sort of understand their faith journey. Right. And going back to the the marriage analogy, it's you know, the, I'm sure you've seen the commercial with the lady with the nail on her head mm-hmm. and don't, don't you're always trying to fix it. Right. Yeah. But just sit, sitting with them and trying to understand what's your faith experience like? Let, let's just read the scriptures, not a specific scripture, but let's just read the scripture. What do you pull from that chapter? Yeah. Wow.
1: That's interesting. How do you look at it differently? right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it depends on what they want to do, but there are some people where I've said, I've shared my experience with them and I've said, there are a lot of things that I think that are difficult and that we do have to struggle with and to wrestle with a little bit, I would happily do that with you if you found that helpful. Mm. So you want to talk about the kinderhook plates and you want to read through those things and talk about them. Let's do it. Like I'm Mm, thrilled. You know, if there's something that's unsettled, unsettled you a little bit, the truth is I'm not afraid of that. Like I'm happy to read that with you. And it's totally okay. If when it's all said and done, you and I end up with a different conclusion from that, but I would love to just be with you through this moment. And if that's something that's helpful. Some people like that, some people don't, you know? So that's what I mean is that I think you very much have to kind of follow their lead and let them tell you how you can be most helpful to them and listen to the spirit as well. Cause I think there are going to be times where you have a thought or an impression to do something and you should trust that. Yeah.
0: And I love that position of just saying, you know, I'm a, I'm not afraid of these discussions, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to engage with these discussions and, and understand how you're interacting. And I'd love to share how I interacted with them in the past. Right. So I mean, you're not saying that a, a bishop or leader needs to go out and and engage with all these things, obviously, you've gone on that journey, but I don't think you're recommending your exact same journey to every other bishop or
1: no or no, I don't think so but i I do recommend what Elder Ballard said when he spoke to the the c e s leaders of the church, where he said that you know outside of their parents, we who are kind of leaders and people who are called to teach in the church, we ought to know the gospel topics essays, like the back of our hand, and Mm -hmm. we ought to be able to address these issues. And, you know, I love the way that he puts this in that talk. He says, gone are the days when someone has a question that's difficult to answer. And we just say, don't worry about that. Or we kind of bear our testimony at them Mm -hmm. as a way of avoiding actually engaging on that issue. He said, the days that we do that are over. We need to know our stuff and we need to be able to help them to give a reason for the faith that's within us. Right. And so, again, I don't think that that means you need to follow my exact path, but I do think the church puts out excellent resources that yeah. help to summarize some of these difficult issues. So you can read a gospel topics essay on Nauvoo polygamy or on blacks in the priesthood. And and you can come away from that kind of knowing about this issue and having a much more nuanced perspective about yeah. it than what I think the worst case scenario is, is if we repeat kind of older understandings of those issues. And we start to perpetuate problematic interpretations of those issues that, that offer easy answers that are not answers at all, that they're, they're just wrong. Yeah.
0: And so, I mean, the least a leader can do is engage with those resources the church has created, especially the gospel topic essays, which are fantastic resources that uh, every leader at least needs to read. Well, once over at some point. For sure. So should, should we, you know, outside of the church produce stuff, I think some leaders are afraid to go there because they don't want to be deceived, but you've engaged with all of that, so how do we know if we're we're reviewing material that's going to educate us rather than you know because there are some materials, podcast people, individuals with other motives that are maybe more deceptive than informative mm-hmm. so how do we navigate educating ourselves as a leader without being deceived?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of times if you have a friend in your circle that's Kind of into this stuff, I'm really lucky. I'm here at BYU, and I have great <laughs> friends, you know, who yeah. I who I can ask. And one of my friends, Matt Gray, in the Ancient Scripture Department, he is such a wealth of knowledge about really good resources for how to think about this or that issue and in, in books. He's an academic, so he gives me yeah. really academic books, yeah, sure. but, <laughs> which is fun. Yeah, I love them. So I think it's sometimes finding someone that you like, I trust them and I feel like they they yeah, like may that. be a step or two ahead of me when it comes to these things. Yeah. I would love for them to point me to some faithful resources that are going to help with that. But at the same time, I'm, I'm not afraid of our history. I'm not afraid of reading a biography of someone that, that is an LDS or that isn't, you know, pulling punches. I, I think you need to know kind of what you're ready for at what time. Yeah. Uh, but in the end, I believe that, you know, th- this is something that I, I share in my education week talk. Spencer Fluman talks about this, where he says, uh, I was reading about some of the difficult aspects of Nauvoo polygamy. And I came across a diary of Helen Mar Whitney Kimball, who was one of Joseph's plural wives, the youngest of his plural wives. And for him, he said, this is a very difficult issue. And I'm just thinking, oh, this is, this is dangerous. This is sort of scary is kind of what he was saying. But then he said, I came across this passage where in referring to this issue, she said, it is a subject that can bear investigation. And in talking about that, Mm. he said, I sort of felt rebuked. You know, she didn't feel like this was something that needed to be hidden or obfuscated about. It was something that we can read. We can know about. I just think you have to follow what the doctrine and covenant says, where it says that as all have not faith, seek ye learning even by study and also by faith. Mm. If we lean too far on the faith side. I think it actually creates problems. If we lean too far on the study side, you know, not doing it with faith, it can create problems. But I think if you have in parallel study and faith, I think that you're going to be all right. yeah, I love that. and
0: and really, if you go to any desert book or church bookstore, you could spend a lifetime with the resources that are in there and and not get through it all. And so even if you just stayed in that realm and but I love that, just it, it may be scary or there may be some things and with these stages as people, as I've explained them to others, that they're very dynamic. And it's not like we all, since I'm a stage three Mormon, I'm all stage three, Mm -hmm. where in reality, there's part of my face that is probably stage four, part of the stage five, right? But the total sum, I sort of look at and say, I'm probably in that stage three category, or we may be stage three Mormons and stage four Americans, right? I think uh, there's some Americans going through a faith crisis with every different presidential election, right? right? Yeah. And, but we still, we don't throw it all out. We still hang with it and sit with it. Right. The other question I get, as I describe these crises of faith or these, I'm sorry, these faith stages, it's easy to think, you know, as you describe this transition from stage three to stage four, stage four can sort of be like, okay, so what you're saying is we don't want to slip into stage four. Okay. So are any of these stages a bad thing or negative. Is there any negative connotation or positive connotation? To well,
1: I think the way that James Fowler talks about them is that he would say the move from stage three to stage four, that, that, that there's a certain kind of progression there. Yeah. Again, it's not to imply that it's better, but there's a progression. And when Bruce C. Hafen, Elder Hafen talks about this, he says a similar thing. He says that in his simplest version of faith, he says, answers come too easily. And it actually puts you in a place where you may not be able to withstand life that's going to come along and present itself. So he says, I invite you to step up to that next phase where Mm -hmm. you kind of explore and and learn a little bit more. So for me, again, I think this happens very naturally to people. And I don't know that I ever want to introduce it when someone isn't already there. Mm -hmm. But what I want to do is create conditions where we can talk about it. I think that currently there's still a lot of stigma around this and that we go to church and we want to signal that I'm okay. I'm in, I'm orthodox. Like I've got all the right answers. You know, I have the right kind of testimony. And I'm mindful of the Book of Mormon, where in Moroni, it talks about how one of the reasons that we come to church is so that we can speak one with another concerning the welfare of our souls. And I don't think that just means that we come and talk about how great we're doing. I think it's the good and the bad. The church is a place where we ought to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. We ought to be able to discuss the welfare of our souls and have each other's backs and create a sense of safety so that we can if somebody is struggling with something, they don't have to do that alone. They don't have to think that they're the only one, but they can talk about it without fear that they're going to infect everyone. Yeah.
0: And so is it safe to say that, as I've articulated people, I just say, you know, the stages are neither good nor bad. They're just, they're a perspective of trying to understand the faith experience, right? Mm-hmm. It's not that if you are a stage four Mormon, you you failed somewhere, or if you then became a stage five Mormon, you figured it out, right? It's just definition of, where you're at with your faith?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest consequence of the stages are what it feels like to you. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. stage four is really painful. Mm-hmm. I think people who are in stage four, they're in a lot of pain, and I think sometimes they're people who will <laughs> kind of scare the people around them at church because they seem angry, mm-hmm. they seem upset, they seem thin-skinned, and I think that they are because they're in so much pain, and the best response to that is not to say, well, gee, what's wrong with you? <laughs> it's to say, I want to come alongside you and help. I want to understand what's going yeah. on, what you're going through. And I want to help ease that burden. Cause that's yeah. as a disciple of Christ, that's my job.
0: Good marital vice as well. That's right. So, Absolutely. Um, <laughs> so we've talked about these stages in the context, I think of one-to-one conversation, especially like in a bishop's office, which I think is fantastic. I always go back to being a leader is not about having the answers. It's about having the conversations. Mm. You may not know what to do or what the direction is, but just having the conversation means so much that person in stage four. Yeah. Right? So what about in a more a general, a broader context, like just in church in general, in Sunday school, uh, because we've alluded a little bit, but there's, you know, with, with cultural Mormonism or however we're supposed to term that, there's a culture of certainty mm. that we sometimes, somebody could walk into a first Sunday sacrament meeting, you think, oh, oh I guess. So the point of this group is that everybody can stand up there and say, I know the church is true. And that's mm-hmm. the point that that certainty and knowledge is the goal rather than sanctification and trust and, mm-hmm. and faith, right? We sort yeah. of water down the faith side so that we can really build it to the, to the no side, yeah. the knowledge side. So or in the dynamics of Sunday school, somebody raises a hand and maybe shares an orthodox perspective or, and we sort of hush that down. Well, this is what the manual says. Let's just keep here. So how do we, how do we lead and navigate this as a leader of a ward or in Sunday school on a more broader
1: scale? Yeah, it's a great question. What I think we can do is we can help create a culture where, you know, there's room for not having all the answers and that maybe our faith isn't about having all the answers, but it's about putting our trust in God. And it's about creating space for people to learn and grow and come closer to Christ as opposed to like who's in and who's out and all that. One really simple way that I think we can do that is in testimony meeting. I think people often share the big dramatic experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think that's great because those happen, but maybe every once in a while you and I, when we get up to bear our testimony, we can share a very, very simple experience. Just something that says, you know, the other day as i was going about my day-to-day life i felt just the smallest little prompting that i should call someone that was it and i called them and i don't know if it mattered but i <laughs> right. felt like that's what god wanted me to do and i did it and that's what my faith invites me to do you know i believe that idea that everything that invites us to do good or persuades us to believe in christ it's sent forth by the gift and power of christ right and yeah. and those simple little nudges are actually revelation it's not just the big stuff it's not when we knew for sure that this or that thing were true, but that I felt like God just prompted me to do a small thing. And that helped me to be like, oh, he's there. He cares. He's involved in the details of my life. I think making room for those kinds of testimonies too is really important because I think it's easy for people in the crowd to listen to these big burning bush experiences, which totally happened and we should still share. Uh-huh. Yeah. And to say, you know, I've never had that. I wonder if I do have a testimony. And I think they do. I just think that their script for testimony is big and dramatic and we need to make room for other kinds of things. Yeah.
0: I think that's great advice. And even, you know, pulling the elders quorum president aside and say, Hey, in this meeting, would you mind standing? And just, just share the simple testimony. Like you may not have a grandiose experience, but contribute to this meeting and make more room for those that maybe don't have that burning bush experience. Yeah. Like that. All right. Well, as we we wrap up here, I think this has been a thorough journey through Fowler stages, those, the, the elder Hafen perspective of that, And maybe that's a whole nother podcast, but how would you, how did he compartmentalize these? these yeah,
1: it's really similar in that. He says the first one is pretty concrete. It's black and white. It's simple. The middle phase is like stage four, where he says, this is a, it's a tricky time and it's dangerous to move into this phase because it can be so unsettling that you, you want to walk away. But he says, but I think that the best next step is to move into, you know, his stage three Fowler stage five which is where we can grapple with complexity. We can deal with nuance and that he would kind of say that that kind of faith is not only more stable and kind of nourishing, but that it, it's really rewarding. There's something to it that is really satisfying, I think, in, in your soul to not necessarily feel like everything is so concrete and black and white, but that there's beauty in what God is doing. There's another person who I just love, Melissa in a way, who is a, an academic at the University of New Zealand in Auckland she talks about this idea that we like to use the analogy of Christmas lights when it comes to our faith, that they're on and they're all working. But if one breaks, it all falls apart. The whole string is gone. She says, I think that Mormonism is a lot more like sourdough bread, where she says (laughs) that sourdough bread has this starter that is kind of funky and maybe not the most appetizing but that it can create this rich luscious bread that has this creamy interior with these irregular holes and this beautiful crusty outside and she says i think our faith is a lot like that that there's all these different mixes and influences including human ones including culture and time and context and personality but that that's really what makes mormonism beautiful and its truth does not rest in this all or nothing way on whether or not this one thing happened just so but that it's more living, dynamic, and vibrant, and I think I think there's something to that. I think that's what that last phase, the stage five, and Elder Hafen's last stage, kind of grapples with and, and deals with. Awesome,
0: cool. Well, this has been insightful, and now you're all warmed up for your. That's right. Your class at three ten here. So yeah, we should just go take it in there and press play. <laughs> yeah, we'll sit down and, and, and listen. Well, this is great, and just as a, as a closing question, as you reflect back on your time as bishop, and I'm sure you've had opportunity to meet with various people in various stages. How has that time as a leader made you a better follower
1: of Jesus Christ? Hmm, That's a good question. I think it's, you know, kind of staying on these themes of simple versus more complex stories. I think that when you're a bishop, you get to know the whole story. And it's really, I think, easy as a member to maybe look around and say, oh, these people seem to have their act together and these people don't. We (laughs) we create very binary kind of of (laughs) sortings. (laughs) But when you're a bishop, you see that it's all a lot more complex than that. And the Mm -hmm. people who often look like they have their act together, they have struggles just like everybody else. They're very human and they have things that they are often working through silently. And then a lot of times those people who look like they maybe don't have it all together, there's something there that you, at least for me, I can think of, you know, a handful of people where I'm like, I think that may be the most saintly man in our ward. I really do think that that is... I think he's far more righteous than me. I think most of the people in my ward are, but you know, certainly some of these people that I think others might look at and think, I wonder what's going on there. When you see the whole story, you realize that there's a lot of complexity there and you, you can love and appreciate people in a different way.
0: That concludes my interview with Professor Scott Braithwaite, Faith Transitions stages of faith think on this a while as a leader and i know i know this is a big issue with a lot of leaders when they're faced with individuals who are doubting in a way that they've never doubted or they're really struggling and wrestling with their faith and they're looking to the bishop their leader the relief society president to say you know to tell them what what it is they should do to work themselves out of this and we've done a variety of, of interviews about concepts and topics we have more coming if there's any other angle that you can think of that we haven't sufficiently covered around this concept of doubt, faith transitions, faith crises, please reach out to me, give me your ideas, let me know how we can better cover this this topic so all leaders listening can be better prepared leaders to help and minister to those who doubt. And that concludes this throwback episode of the Leading Saints podcast. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts and maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about, the friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts. Well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org slash contact. Remember, go to leadingsaints.org slash 14 to hear the Packard family's experience of When Loved Ones Leave the Church.